Gresham College presents Jane Austen, Persuasion, Irony and the Mysterious Vagaries of Narrative by Professor Belinda Jack. Well, good evening and welcome, and thank you very much for coming. So we've been listening to Gustave Pleyel. Um, he was one of Jane Austen's favourite composers, and Jane Austen, as many of you will know, uh, was a very keen musician and very accomplished keyboard player, and Pleyel was one of the composers that she really enjoyed playing. Um, that gives you an idea of how accomplished she was. Um, as many of you will know, it's very nice to see a number of familiar faces from the last few years. Um, this is my fourth and final year as Gresham Professor of Rhetoric, and so this is the first of the last six lectures that I'll be giving. And over the last three years, my overall title was The Mysteries of Reading and Writing. Um, sometimes I took a historical line um, in relation, for example, to the history of reading across time. And sometimes we were looking at particular literary works and exploring them. It was really, um, in some respects, um, exercises in close reading. And the works came from the three different major genres, the novel, poetry and theatre. And I also occasionally appealed to the biographies of various authors. Um, now, a lot of uh, purist literary theorists don't like uh, making any reference to biography. The literary work stands on its own and it means what it means. Um, I don't take quite such a purist view. Um, I think there are times when it's very useful to know something about the author. But of course, one doesn't want to fall into the trap of thinking that the literary work is just a version of the life. That certainly can't be the case with Jane Austen, because as most of you will know, she lived a relatively um, withdrawn existence, um, as was the case for most single women at the time. And so very much of her work is obviously, she's drawing on a lot of her reading um, and obviously her imagination. Now, this year I've included the term rhetoric <clears throat> in the overall title for the next six lectures, Rhetoric and the Life of Literature. And I've done this just because I feel it's important um, that one recognises exactly what Sir Thomas Gresham might have wanted when he endowed my chair in the 16th century as Professor of Rhetoric. And my predecessors have interpreted this uh, title rather loosely. Um, it hasn't prevented them delivering excellent lectures, I should say. Um, but I thought it was time to rein in a bit and to narrow the definition. Now, rhetoric has a bad name, um, as this cartoon demonstrates. Um, and phrases like empty rhetoric, it's all rhetoric, suggest that rhetoric is really more about finding ways to deceive as would be suggested here. And this, of course, can be true. But rhetoric is also an ancient discipline that tries to make sense of how we go about the business of persuasion, which, of course, happens to be the title of Jane Austen's novel. Um, this would be um, a fairly conventional uh, definition of rhetoric, the art and study of using language effectively and persuasively. Now, I think one could argue that all human communication is essentially rhetoric, is essentially persuasive. 
I mean, even a very sort of cliched, mundane rhetorical question like, isn't it a lovely day, has in some sense a persuasive element. I mean, if you hadn't actually noticed what the day was like and someone said, isn't it a lovely day, you might be persuaded to think, oh, yes, yes, it is really rather a lovely day. So I think it's reasonable to argue that rhetoric has a very, very broad definition. And what I want to do this year is to explore some of the nuts and bolts of rhetoric um, in order to show how understanding certain kinds of terms, certain kinds of technical terms, allows us to see how literature works, how a literary work kind of conjures its magic. And I think knowing something about the discipline of rhetoric opens literary works up. It's a little bit like putting a magnifying glass to them. Um, but I also want to argue something that goes beyond that, which is to say that I think really great works of literature actually push the boundaries of rhetoric. They use language and they use techniques that take us beyond what the discipline of rhetoric can tell us. They, they push the boundaries and render what you might call the schema of rhetoric too rigid or too approximate. Um, in other words, I think great literary works are to some degree beyond rhetoric. So tonight we begin with Jane Austen's persuasion in relation to two notions, those of irony and narrative technique. So why Jane Austen? Well, um, it's partly personal preference, but also because I'm intrigued by how extraordinarily omnipresent Jane Austen and her works are in contemporary culture. Um, and I was thinking about this the other day um, as I went up the stairs of my lo local Waterstones to the cafe and I caught sight of a, a pile of books, newly, a new publication <coughs> called Pies and Prejudice uh, <laughs> in Search of the North. Um, so this is sort of hot off the press. Um, it's part memoir, it's part sociological, anthropological, linguistic inquiry into what we mean when we talk about the North and what does it mean to be a northerner. And its author, Stuart McConey, um, grew up in the North but then moved South and then started to puzzle over what people in the South meant when they talked about the North and being a northerner. Um, I think the quantity of Austin uh, merchandising is also ample testimony to her continuing popularity. And thanks to Google, um, one can easily track down various Jane Austen products. These are temporary tattoos, you'll be pleased to see. Um, and it contains quite a nice sort of spread of, of temporary tattoos that you can choose from depending on, I don't know who you are and what sort of social event you're attending. Well, there's even Jane Austen toothpaste. So now to the story of persuasion. Um, I want to propose um, a version of the story. So, once upon a time, there lived in Kellynch Hall in Somersetshire, a vain and handsome knight, a widower, Sir Walter Elliot. He had three daughters. Two of the daughters, like their father, was proud and selfish. But the middle daughter, Anne, the Cinderella, let's say, of the family, 
as her mother had been, was kind and honest and good. And she suffered the bad temper, neglect, and demands of her family in silence. But in her goodness, she was lonely and disheartened. For almost eight years, while her father and sister flattered each other's vanities and sought out their own trivial pleasures in a wholly self-centered way, and her younger sister married and became a complaining, feeble, sickly wife and mother, Anne Elliot lived in a state of, I quote, desolate tranquility. Aging, and there's a special urgency about women aging um, in relation to marriage during the period, unloved and loving in memory only and without all hope. Eight years earlier, at the age of 20, Anne had been asked for her hand in marriage by a confident young naval officer with whom she was in love. But on the advice of her friend and counsellor, Lady Russell, who is her godmother and stands in place of the mother she no longer has, Anne rejects him. Lady Russell argues that his confidence and enthusiasm are dangerous to a conservative society. And in addition, she considers his family background insufficiently distinguished to be an appropriate match for Anne, the daughter of Sir Walter Elliot of Kellynch Hall. Anne was persuaded by the correctness of Lady Russell's advice and the match was broken off and the young officer sent away. And henceforth, Anne's life was less a life than going through the motions of a tedious and rather pathetic routine. Astonishingly, however, eight years later, which is really where the novel begins, Anne and her former lover found themselves in the same corner of England. Captain Wentworth had recently returned from victory over Napoleon and had become a hero and a man of considerable wealth because there were very lucrative prizes for winning battles um, in, the Navy, in, in the Navy. His noble sta stature, all the world except Anne, had failed at first to acknowledge, but now all the world sees him differently. And in, in spite of the initial misunderstanding, the two of them discovered that their love had survived this long period of separation and they're reunited for good. And her lover's return brings the return of Anne's earlier beauty, which we learn she'd lost by the age of 28. And with her now eminently suitable husband, she leaves her heartless father and sister to pass their callous lives in each other's company. Well, this is roughly based on an account by an American critic, J.M. Duffy. Um, he was one of the earliest critics to tell the story of persuasion um, very much as a fairy tale, and a number of other critics have done the same since. Now, if you summarise the novel in this sort of way, um, complete with a happy ending, I think those of you who know the novel um, will, will see that it's not altogether unrecognisable um, as an account of the story. But fairy tales operate in a world of make-believe um, that allows the reader or the listener to escape to an elsewhere, um, an elsewhere that's free of the complexities of the real world, particularly, in my view, in relation to time and change. And the world of persuasion, unlike a fairy tale, is one of extraordinary precariousness. And this is as a function of the omnipresent sense of time and change, that time is always moving on and changes can, can happen at any moment with unknown consequences. And it's also a world in which reasonable choices are not necessarily um, rewarded. 
So while the story of the novel can be told in fairy tale terms, the novel is a very profound one. Its story is equally that of a young woman living at a particular historical moment, trying to maintain some control over her life, um, while in a society, constrained to live in a society where everything's changing, particularly in terms of family relationships and friendships. Love, in her case, has to be repressed, and life seems, this may be slightly exaggerated, but no more than a prologue to death. She simply has to live through this life, um, one of tedious routine, being poorly treated by her family, um, and eventually she will die. Now, I say this is exaggerated because one of the wonderful things about the novel is that Anne actually has a creative role to play in the novel, um, and that's because of the narrative technique of the novel, which I'll say more about later. But essentially, we often see things from Anne's point of view. So in that sense, Anne is almost narrating the story. So while in one sense, it, it, her life is presented as time passing with death at the end of it, in another sense, she is actually the artist creating the very novel that she's the heroine of. So it's a great novel, um, or in the words of Duffy, a miraculous event in the history of English fiction. And in my view, its brilliance can be explained in terms of these uh, of two principal reasons. One is Austen's use of irony in the novel, which is in some ways different from the irony of the earlier novels, and also by persuasion's narrative technique, the way in which the story is actually told. Now, these two features are closely associated. And as I hope to show, they also combine to create a crucial moral dimension in the novel. So tonight, we'll be considering irony, narrative technique, and the point of the novel, which is, I believe, it lies in its ethical reach, the moral ground that it lays, and one which continues to intrigue the reader, however remote the novel's historical setting and associated political and cultural and economic codes. Now, irony is a slippery device, and the more you think about it, the more its field of significance extends. The word came into the English language in the 16th century, so relatively recently, and its ascendance, um, and by that I mean the use of irony, um, really accelerates during the 17th and 18th centuries, that's to say, during the Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. And this period coincides with the rise of the novel as the dominant literary genre, and poetry, theatre, sermons, uh, conduct books, other kinds of reading um, become less popular, and the novel suddenly takes off. And with it, irony as a way of telling a story takes off too. It derives from the Latin ironia, and before that from the Greek, Eroneia, which means dissimulation or ignorance purposely affected. Now, Socratic irony is an important touchstone. And Socratic irony uh, it, uh, is very much in line with that notion, that definition of ignorance purposely affected. Um, because in the dialogues, Socrates often feigns ignorance of something in order to argue in a particular way with his interlocutor. Um, and then prove them wrong. And the American philosopher Paul Allen Miller argues in a very interesting 
article, which I mean, has nothing to do with Jane Austen, but it's a very interesting article about irony, he points out that it's not just a literary device or a stylistic ornament, nor is Socrates' use of irony in his conversations with his Athenian friends merely an exercise in sarcasm, which is a closely related rhetorical device, nor is it mere wit or false modesty. modesty. It is, Miller argues, and I quote, what makes possible the vision of another register of existence, another self, another form of meaning. It is the linguistic turn that makes possible the doubling of the empirical by the transcendental and hence the critical. Now, that is all rather pretentious, I admit. <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll gloss this in a moment, but I think a bit more Miller helps. He, he goes on to say, what could it mean that the fons et origo, the source and origin of the Occident's deliberate and methodical pursuit of truth, was one who spoke a language which, by definition, did not mean what it said. How is the reader supposed to react? Now, the point he's making is that if Socrates is one of the touchstones of Western philosophy, then how is it that his technique, which is an ironic technique, can really be made sense of because, of course, the purpose of irony or the function of irony is to propose something which might actually mean the opposite of what's proposed. And so his point is, how can Socrates hold this extraordinary position in the history of Western philosophy when irony is so much part of the way he goes about things? Now, Lionel Trilling, who I think is one of the great Austin critics, sees irony as a method of comprehension, in other words, how do we comprehend a statement? Do we comprehend it as saying what it says, or do we actually comprehend it as meaning the opposite of what it says? Um, the critic Wayne Booth, not um, in relation to Austin, but in, in, the relation, in relation to the way writers use irony more generally, takes this even further and says, the author, insofar as we can discover him, and he is often very remote indeed, refuses to declare himself, however subtly, for any stable proposition, even the opposite of whatever proposition his irony vigorously denies. The only sure affirmation is that negation is that negation that begins all ironic play. This affirmation must be rejected, leaving the possibility, and in infinite ironies the clear implication, that since the universe, or at least the universe of discourse, is inherently absurd, all statements are subject to ironic undermining. No statement can really, in inverted commas, mean what it says. Well, I wouldn't go that far, and I think that some of the greatest works of literature, including Austin's Persuasion, are as interesting and problematic as they are because of a certain quality of revelation associated with what Lionel Trilling describes as Jane Austen's use of irony. Now, the um, Princeton philosopher Alexander Nermas says of irony, and I quote, Ironists can maintain a distance that allows them to say when pressed, but that's not what I meant, not what I meant at all, and to get away with it. I say get away with it, not because I presume always to know what an ironist means, but precisely because I believe that it is not often clear what ironists mean, even though we strongly suspect it is not what they say. Their words do not bind them. So ironic statements say what they say, but they may also say the opposite. 
And this is why Miller refers to this idea of the doubling of the empirical, the empirical being what we know by experience. So how do we know which of two things to believe? How do we know whether a statement should be taken at face value or understood as ironic and therefore meaning its exact opposite? So let's look at some examples. Um, Austin's most famous ironic proposition, and I'm sure you all know it, comes at the beginning of Pride and Prejudice. It is... Um, this, by the way, was in the Telegraph's 30 best opening lines um, back in February when they ran one of these sort of literary um, surveys. Um, so this, we're told, is a statement of truth and one, furthermore, which is universally acknowledged. We may, may immediately doubt this truth. Single wealthy men may be in want of a good time rather than a wife. In want of, here meaning in need of. And it soon becomes clear that Austin's story reveals the opposite. It's young women and young women's mothers uh, who are keenly on the lookout for wealthy unmarried men who might make eligible husbands um, for them or their daughters. But the deeper irony and pride and prejudice, one that is more complex than statements that certainly mean what they say and the opposite, is a comic one which emerges out of the mismatch between Elizabeth's confidence or overconfidence or pride in her estimation of Darcy and the narrator's subtle hints that her views are in fact based on prejudice and are only ever limited insights. Now, the ironies in persuasion and the relationship between irony and narrative technique are different. This, remember, is her last complete novel. This is because the late novel... Um, in the late novel, the ironies are, I'm happy to say, to some degree bound up with rhetoric. The Art of Persuasion, which happens to be the title of Austen's novel. And as Arthur E. Walzer has argued, and I quote, ironically, a will totally under the control of selfishness, such as Sir Walter's or Elizabeth's, is so closed off to others that it becomes resistant to emotional appeal and invulnerable to gen genuine persuasion, while a will such as Anne's, open to both the stirring of the affections and the moral claims um, that others make on her, is persuadable. In other words, I think you could argue that the novel is actually about the art of rhetoric. The novel is about the importance of recognising, or at least toying, with the possibility of the ironic which leaves us in an uncertain position as readers because we have to decide what is and what isn't ironic. So let's look at a range um, of other ironies in the novel, um, ironies which are of rather different types. Overheard conversations provide very rich possibilities. Um, Wentworth's famous hazelnut speech um, is one such. And he says very pompously, here is a nut to exemplify a beautiful, glossy nut, which, blessed with original strength, has outlived all the storms of autumn. Not a puncture, not a weak spot anywhere. This nut, while so many brethren have fallen and been trodden underfoot, is still in possession of all the happiness that a hazelnut can be supposed capable of. 
So these lines come from chapter 10. Captain Wentworth delivers them to Louisa Musgrove, and Anne Elliot overhears them. And Captain Wentworth is on, I mean, this is one of his hobby horses, a sort of favourite topic of conversation. Um, the value of constancy and strong character. This beautiful nut has weathered the storms and stayed on the tree, unlike others. And Wentworth uses the nut as an illustration of the importance of resoluteness and strength of mind. And as readers, we know that Wentworth is talking this way because he believes that Anne Elliot broke her engagement with him because she had insufficient strength of character to stand up against the disapproval of others. So the way Louisa hears this speech and the way Anne overhears it is really very different. She'd promised him her heart and she's gone back on her pledge. And Austen's multiple ironies are a key part of this passage. Captain Wentworth considers all the happiness that a hazelnut can be supposed capable of. Well, by its very absurdity, this final line throws Wentworth's example into question. And at this point in the novel, it's a moot point where the firmness of character does increase happiness. Now, it's Wentworth's inflated confidence that leads him to deliver the hazelnut speech on which his fate takes an ironic turn. The speech is an answer to Louisa Musgrove's claim that she, unlike her sister Henrietta, and at this point he's given up on Anne, um, Anne's given up on him, um, but the two sisters are vying for Wentworth's affection, and Louisa is trying to convince him that she's much firmer and, and more unwavering um, than her sister, knowing that this is something he very much admires. And Louisa makes her sister's submit, seeming submission to her aunt's resistance to a planned visit to the haters evidence of a feeble character that she contrasts to Wentworth with her own. And so I made her go. I could not bear that she should be frightened from the visit by such nonsense. What? Would I be turned back from doing a thing that I had determined to do and that I know to be right by the airs and interference of such a person, or of any person, I may say. No, I have no idea of being so easily persuaded. When I have made up my mind, I have made it. And Henrietta seemed entirely to have made up hers, and yet she was as near giving it up out of nonsensical complacence. Wentworth approves and says, happy for her to have such a mind as yours at hand. Woe betide him and her too when it comes to things of consequence, when they're placed in circumstances requiring fortitude and strength of mind, if she have not resolution enough to resist idle interference in such a trifle as this. Your sister is an amiable creature, but yours is the character of decision and firmness, I see. It is the worst evil of too yielding and indecisive a character that no influence over it can be depended on. And then returning to his former earnest tone, he says, my first wish for all whom I am interested in is that they should be firm. Now, the exchange is richly ironic. The distinguishing character traits that Louisa boasts are not hers, but Wentworth's. Her intent is to suggest that she has a masculine resolution rather than a typically stereotypical feminine suasibility. Wentworth is opposed to young women being open to influence, except, of course, by him. And when Louisa later attempts to demonstrate her physical bravery to Wentworth by jumping from the wall at Lyme, resulting in an almost fatal accident, shouting, I am determined, I will, 
Wentworth, assuming responsibility for her fall and prompted by his earlier flirtatious talk, feels honor bound to marry Louisa. So she has tried to demonstrate her, how resolute and firm and masculine she is by jumping for a wall very foolishly um, and then has concussion and makes life very difficult for everybody. Um, but she does this in order to impress Wentworth and then Wentworth then feels a sense of responsibility. But his sense of responsibility comes just at the point in the novel when he realises that he still loves Anne. And so there's nothing that Wentworth can do except essentially withdraw from that society. So he disappears, as it were. Um, and the irony couldn't be more obvious. The man who claimed to be master of his destiny uh, has now left the stage and waits to see uh, how fate will decide his future. Um, and there are other delightful ironies of fate. Um, Anne learns that Captain Benwick was engaged to Captain Harville's sister and that he'd been waiting for promotion and wealth before marrying, only to find out, tragically, that she'd died the previous summer while he was at sea. And this, of course, leads Anne to contemplate a parallel scenario, one in which she had insisted on a comparably, comparably long engagement and that Wentworth might then have returned to sea to seek his fortune and that, meanwhile, Anne herself might have died. The ironies of life and the ironies of fictional plots are brilliantly exposed. Perhaps what Anne enjoys is a kind of moral luck. To try to circumnavigate in wedlock, quote, the uncertainty of all human events and calculations, unquote, is to avoid living itself. Now, the all-consuming nature of Anne's love reduces everything in her view except the object of her love, and this is brilliantly contrasted with Lady Russell's blindness to what is most dear to Anne when Captain Wentworth walks past the two women as they walk down a street in Bath. The following morning, Anne was out with her friend and for the first hour in an incessant and fearful sort of watch for him in vain. But at last, in returning down Pulteney Street, she distinguished him on the right-hand pavement at such a distance as to have him in view the greater part of the street. There were many other men about him, many groups walking the same way, but there was no mistaking him. She looked instinctively at Lady Russell, but not from any mad idea of her recognising him so soon as she did herself. No, it was not to be supposed that Lady Russell would perceive him till they were nearly opposite. She looked at her, however, from time to time, anxiously, and when the moment approached, which must point him out, though not daring to look again, for her own countenance she knew was unfit to be seen, she was yet perfectly conscious of Lady Russell's eyes being turned exactly in the direction of him, of her being, in short, intently observing him. She could thoroughly comprehend the sort of fascination he must possess over Lady Russell's mind, the difficulty it must be for her to withdraw her eyes, the astonishment she must be feeling that eight or nine years should have passed over him and in foreign climes and in active service too, without robbing him of one personal grace. At last, Lady Russell threw her head back, uh, threw back her head. Now, how would she speak of him? You will wonder, said she, what has been fixing my eyes so long. I was looking after some window curtains, which Lady Alicia and Mrs. Franklin were telling me of last night. They described the drawing room window curtains of one of the houses in this, on this side of the way and this part of the street as being the handsomest and best hung of any in Bath. 
but could not recollect the exact number, and I've been trying to find out which it could be. But I confess I can see no curtains hereabout that answer the description. Anne sighed and blushed and smiled in pity and disdain, either at her friend or herself. The part which provoked her most was that in all this waste of foresight and caution, she should have lost the right moment for seeing whether he saw them. In other words, she's so taken up with whether or not Lady Russell has noticed him um, that she's lost uh, her concentration. And the smile of pity and disdain which Anne gives immediately afterwards is either for her friend or herself. And we as readers are caught up in the multifaceted irony which deflates both characters. We feel both pity and disdain for both Anne and Lady Russell. And the irony here could, I think, be described as one of multiple subjectivities. Anne makes assumptions about Lady Russell's subjective experience, which is not the objective experience that she assumed. And objectively, Anne assumes that Lady Russell can only be experiencing the street as she is, in other words, dominated by Captain Wentworth. But Lady Russell, as she's not infatuated with Wentworth, is preoccupied by the domestic and mundane curtains. Um, now, this irony of different subjective experiences is compounded by Anne's self-irony. Such has been her preoccupation with Lady Russell's experience that she momentarily loses sight of her own interests, whether or not they've been noticed by Wentworth. And Anne's capacity to see the comedy of her ways of thinking adds very much to the appeal of her character. Her self-perspective contrasts with that of her father's and sister's, and indeed Captain Wentworth, um, at this stage at least in the novel. And the consummate irony of the novel, of course, concerns Wentworth. And it raises two fundamental questions about the novel's conclusion. Firstly, how is it that Wentworth, having behaved so impetuously and having caused grief to a number of people, how can he be said to be worthy of Anne? And the only real answer to the question, at least implied by the novel, is that Wentworth does penance for his mistakes. He comes to know himself, and this self-knowledge rids him of negative traits and emotions, namely pride and anger. It's Wentworth himself who tells us that after Louise's accident, quote, his penance has become severe, unquote. He has, we're told, felt the pain of both, quote, horror and remorse, all this leads him to understand that what he has learnt, quote, ought to make me forgive everyone sooner than myself. In fact, he comes to see that he doesn't deserve Anne. And this is how, thanks to his new self-knowledge, he's able to explain this. Um, and this he is now, thanks to his new self-knowledge, able to explain with both wit and supreme irony when he says... I have valued myself on honourable toils and just rewards. Like other great men under reverses, I must endeavour to subdue my mind to fortune. I must learn to brook being happier than I deserve. Um, essentially, I've been accustomed to believe that everything that has come to me I have earned. I've prided myself on working hard for just rewards. Like other great men who suffer setbacks, I must try to accept my luck. I must learn to put up with being happier than I deserve. So just as Anne self-ironising wins, um, wins us over to her, so, do, so too does Wentworth's at the end of the novel. 
Um, and it's these self-ironies that make us feel that the match uh, couldn't be more fitting. There's one further category of irony that I would just like to mention briefly, which I term self-reflexive irony. And this is an irony that leads the reader to consider the artificiality of the text being read and to consider the relationship between this known artificiality and the reality of the text. Um, this is to do with how the subject of reading is treated as we read the novel. Um, and I think if I give an example, um, that'll become clearer. So Captain Harville, um, who's, as you know, one of the more minor characters, we're told that he's no reader. While Captain Benwick um, is, and his reading is the subject of considerable exploration. Benwick, we learn, is, and I quote, a young man of considerable taste in reading, though principally poetry. The though, though principally poetry, indicates a reservation on Anne's part. She considers poetry to be less edifying than prose, especially prose that's pious or improving in intent. Benwick's favourite authors are Scott and Byron. Scott for his tender songs, Byron for his descriptions of broken hearts. Both touch on Anne's own experience, perhaps explaining her reservations about them. She argues with him that, quote, it was the misfortune of poetry to be seldom safely enjoyed by those who enjoyed it completely, and that the strong feelings which alone could estimate it truly were the very feelings which ought to taste it but sparingly, unquote. In other words, Anne implies that poetry may demand strong feelings for its full appreciation, but strong feelings have their own dangers. Wholehearted enjoyment is not sage enjoyment. Poetry, Anne considers, should be sparingly tasted and balanced by a healthy diet of, and I quote, our best moralists, unquote, collections of the, quote, finest letters and memoirs of worth and suffering. These will cure him of his surplus of sentiment over reason. So she feels he needs to rebalance his reading. And this is where the novel reflects on itself. This is the self-reflexive irony. Anne gives discursive literature precedence over works of the imagination. But the novel that we're reading is, of course, a work of imagination. Um, and so uh, there's the self-reflexive irony that we're being told in the novel, we're being warned off certain kinds of imaginative literature, but it's precisely that kind of imaginative literature that we're busy reading. Now, most of the time, the distance between um, Anne and the novelist Austin um, is highly ambiguous. And this is where I want to move on to the question of narrative technique and to consider the peculiar manner of the novel's telling. So we've looked at various ironies in the novel. Now I want to turn to narrative technique and show how there's a close relationship between those two. So there's a relationship, a very elusive similarity between Austin, the novelist, and Anne, the heroine. It's a closeness which Anne, in which Anne is almost equal um, to the novelist herself. And as the American critic Marvin Mudrick puts it, needs no supervision. Such is Austin's sleight of hand that Anne appears to have a kind of autonomous life 
independent of the narrator. As Madrid goes on to say, Anne sees clearly without caprice. For, for Anne, even the author's obvious partiality towards her serves only to provide space and light for a mind richly responsive to both. That's the end of the quotation. And Anne's apparent independence from the novelist is bound up with her sense of proportion, a quality which she alone possesses, at least until the very end of the novel when Wentworth finally displays something akin. Anne has to cope with contradictions, and these Austen narrates with irony. But there's another technique which further contributes to the novel's ambiguity, and that is its narrative style. Jane Austen was one of the first British writers systematically to employ free indirect speech or free indirect discourse. And this is a way of telling a story where ambiguity is introduced to leave the reader unclear as to whether we're hearing a character's thoughts directly or whether these thoughts are the view of the narrator. So, for example, when Anne reflects on Wentworth's estimation of how she's changed over the eight years um, for which they've been separated, we read this passage. So altered that he should not have known her again. In, an, in speech marks. So this is what Wentworth said. These were words which could not but dwell with her. Yet she soon began to rejoice that she had heard them. They were of sobering tendency. They allayed agitation. They composed and consequently must make her happier. In other words, because Anne has been in a state of turmoil, not knowing how Wentworth feels about her all these years later. Overhearing this, she argues to herself, should be a comfort because she's no longer in any doubt that that relationship has come to an end. Frederick Wentworth had used such words or something like them, but without an idea that they would be carried round to her, that she would get to hear about it. He had thought her wretchedly altered and in the first moment of appeal had spoken as he felt. She had shown a feeble, uh, sorry, um, as he felt. He had not forgiven Anne Elliot. She had used him ill, deserted and disappointed him. And worse, she had shown a feebleness of character in doing so, which his own decided, confident temper could not endure. She had given him up to oblige others. It had been the effect of over-persuasion. It had been weakness and timidity. Now, is Austen telling us that Anne had acted as a function of weakness and timidity. It had been weakness and timidity, she says. Or is this Anne's view? This confusion of narrator and character, like irony, creates a double perspective and leaves the reader in an uncertain position. One, uh, a position in which choices have to be made about meaning, just as with irony. Does it mean what it says or the opposite of what it says? How do we understand this idea of weakness and timidity? Is this a judgment being made by the narrator, by the author? Or is this Anne reflecting on her own character? So this double perspective leaves us in a position where we have to make choices. And often free and direct discourse, free and direct speech in persuasion um, involves the narrator and Anne. And this accounts for what one critic, um, Cheryl Ann Weissman, describes as the mysteriousness of Anne Elliot. She writes, 
Among the characters in Jane Austen's canon of fiction, the heroine of persuasion is supremely mysterious. Anne Elliot suggests a residual depth of personality that eludes narrator as well as reader in this Austen's last completed work. Well, I think it's a moot point whether a character created by an author can elude its author. Um, but I do think that, that there is a wonderful elusiveness about Anne, and I think that's explained by this use of free and direct speech, where we don't know what the authority is behind much of what we're told about the characters um, and their personalities, their dispositions. Now, in addition to what I've called the double, doublings of irony and the doubles of doublings of narrative technique, as, which are a function of free and direct discourse, there are other doublings in the novel um, which also add to the sort of instability of the narrative, um, the degree to which we need to be wary of taking things at face value. Um, there is what Weissman goes on to describe as a contrasting and conspicuous schematism. The wistful tone of persuasion is informed by a bizarre and implacable emphasis on doubleness and refrains in diction. There are various phrases that recur, plot, there are sort of doublings of the plot, like the two um, scenes in which there's a hidden listener um, overhearing a conversation. Um, and symmetric doubling is not intrinsically remarkable in Austen's fiction, of course. The titles, Pride and Prejudice, Sense and Sensibility, um, reflect that sort of harmoniously epigrammatic rhythm of 18th century prose. But in that tradition, as in Austen's earlier novels, structural sym symmetry suggests the dependable order of a stable, rational world. In Persuasion, on the other hand, names and events recur in a disturbingly irrational way, reflecting um, a transient um, and an uneasy world. We find a surprising occurrence of coincidentally shared names, for example. In the plot, the dramatic turning point is foreshadowed by an earlier, strikingly similar contrivance, and both narrator's and character's diction are studded with arresting refrains. Prevented from its outset, presented from its outset as a sequel to implicitly meaningful unwritten earlier story, because after all, we start eight years after the, the original love affair, the novel is a puzzling play on the notion of doubleness. So the earlier novels have that kind of symmetry, which is suggestive of a, of a reliable, steady order. Um, in Persuasion, um, there's something more disturbing going on. And I think we're led to ask, well, is Austen poking fun at our credulousness? Is she poking fun at us taking imaginative prose seriously, particularly as we know that Anne um, is rather critical um, of this kind of writing? Um, does Austen want us to be suspicious of her fiction? Well, I think it's these uncertainties which make the novel such a great one. And it means that the rules of rhetoric, and in particular the use of irony, and free and direct discourse explain a great deal. Now, to my amazement, there have been attempts um, over the years to find ways of indicating irony in written texts, typographically. Um, in the 1580s, Henry Denham introduced a rhetorical question mark, or percontation point, or reversed question mark, to indicate irony. So 
you had an ironic statement, and it was followed by this mark. And a rather um, extraordinary 19th century French poet, Henri Bazin, um, um, suggested the same thing. It was to be the Greek letter psi um, with a, not, a dot beneath it. More recently, Tom Dryberg suggested that ironic statements should be in, in italics that slope the other way. Um, now, these attempts strike me as perverse, if not um, destructive, um, because, in my view, the point of irony is its sort of undecidability, its ambiguity. Um, it's not, it doesn't introduce this question um, for, it, for its own sake. It's not just a kind of gratuitous textual difficulty, um, but it's epistemological or even ethical. Um, as the philosopher Paul Allen Miller, whom I cited earlier, argues, Irony is a central feature of certain forms of textual production. Those forms, I contend, have a fundamental ethical importance, not because they impart certain lessons, nor because they reveal the truth, but because they give us the opportunity to think differently, to move beyond the given codifications of good and evil, right and wrong. Um, that's not morality, that's dogma. Um, Without this possibility, he says, ethics can never be truly creative, can never be more than a post hoc codification of a set of ideological givens. In other words, what he's saying is that, that morality is not a set of do's and don'ts of you know, what is proper and what is improper, that ethics is actually about asking difficult questions and approaching them with an open mind. So persuasion is a comedy, um, and it's a profound one. It's a personal um, comedy of personal and social relationships, um, which are subjected to ironic scrutiny in order to explore some of the most important facts of the human existence. But in all this, Austin leaves us multiple choices of interpretation. And this is achieved by, man, by means of a manner of all manner of doublings, principally dependent on irony and narrative technique, which often slips into free and direct speech or free and direct discourse. And the ways in which these are bound up together takes us beyond the definition of these techniques as defined by rhetoric. And this is what allows, in my view, for the novel's moral reach. The novel is essentially about life and death. Persuasion, more than in any other work, explores a tension between proportion and carelessness as principles of action. In other words, how decisions are made and how, of course, other people may persuade others to make decisions. And these belong on a spectrum. And it's the reader who must decide where on the scale morally proper decision-making lies. And this, I think, reflects Jane Austen's extraordinary humility. Um, and as is said in her novel, Emma, seldom, very seldom, does complete truth belong to any human disclosure. Seldom can it happen that something is not a little disguised or a little mistaken. Thank you. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.